Hey, Jason Gotts here. Just a quick announcement that Think Again will be taking a few weeks off to absorb the fact of the end of a decade. We'll be back January 18th, Saturday, with the great mindfulness and insight meditation teacher Joseph Goldstein back for what is now a two-year tradition. Lots of things are happening next year. To stay informed, please visit my website, jasongotts.com, J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com. There's a simple pop-up to sign up for emails from me. You might have to disable your ad blocker temporarily for it to work. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled program. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. If you told me a couple months ago that a podcast about Dolly Parton could move me deeply and raise all kinds of questions that go straight to the wounded heart of America today, I guess I would have been skeptical, to say the least. But that skepticism might be exactly the point. America is an image factory. Country music, rock and roll, New York City, Nashville. We paint with big, broad brushes. And if we're not careful, we miss a lot of the details. My guest today is audio storytelling wizard, Jad Abumrad. He's the creator and the host of Radiolab, More Perfect, and now of Dolly Parton's America, a nine-part podcast series that achieves all those aforementioned implausible things. Jad's trips into the Dollyverse with his co-producer Shima Oliai reveal the country singer as something between a bodhisattva and one of those fairy tale mirrors that tell you the truth about yourself. Welcome to Think Again, Jad. Hey, thanks for having me. I love that introduction. I feel like, oh, it's working. I mean, that was the idea of the project was that uh, Dolly as this kind of mirror lens, whatever metaphor you want to use on America at this moment. Yeah. And uh, I'm so glad to hear you say it back to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Because so often you tell these stories and, and you have one idea and the audience gets something completely different. I mean, she's really insightful about her life and career, but I, I find myself thinking repeatedly, like especially when you're in the Dolly Parton's America class at yeah. University of Tennessee, is Right, it? that's yeah. right, yeah. You know, I find myself thinking like that it's very interesting that you have on the one hand this very sort of deep philosophical inquiry going on here and she in a way strikes me as coming from a very different place you know not herself necessarily analyzing this stuff in this kind of depth and totally. maybe surprised a bit by totally by yeah. I mean I I, I yeah I, I, I think of it as like a, a, like language games in a way like there's the language game of college there's a way you talk and then there's the, the language game of where she grew up which is you don't you don't talk about what you're doing in the same way, but if you look at the way she has moved through the world, like it's, there's a sophistication there and there, there's a, a singularity. Like she's always kind of owning her own version of things uh, in a way that is, is no less sophisticated. So, so yeah, Got it's you. like, it's just kind of like language, the language sounds different, but I'm not entirely sure that she's not thinking and analytically about it. And when you talk about that language game and sort of where she grew up and how she grew up, you know, do you think that that's, that's actually a cultural value in a sense, like to, the, to be more action oriented, to focus on the kind of the results of your actions in the world, that over analysis might be a problem. Totally. Mm. And that's not just where she grew up, but like the industry of country music is mm. it really sort of, it's all about you as the performer being one of the fans kind of like mm -hmm. i think like with rock or something it's about you have, you you're supposed to look up to those rock stars right they're supposed to be like gods but with country uh it's different like you 
you're supposed to have this like connection with the fans. Like you, they are, they are, you are them. They are you in some way. Right, and so you're just one of the people. You're, you're just not like yeah. A, so you can never be above, above those people. And I think she, I love that about country music. Yeah. You know, I've come to love that about country music, and I think she takes that very deeply. And I think it actually is authentically who she is. And yet we do have that kind of bodhisattva thing as we start to look at her life and the way that she is and even the way that she handled that breakup with her, um, oh, remind me of his Porter name. Wagner. Yeah, Porter yeah. Wagner, her former partner. And, and how do you think about, at this point, her almost saintliness, the way it emerges here? Because we're, you know, it's a strange moment culturally where I feel like most of our gods and heroes have been torn down from pedestals. And yet... You know, I see in this project, I see in the things that are coming out about Fred Rogers, I see a kind of raising up, you know, happening again. I mean, I do think that America is looking for folk heroes right now. And I think with Fred Rogers and Dolly, people are gravitating to those people for that need, out of that need. I mean, I think it's natural in the case of Dolly Parton because of the way that she, there are certain things that she has done through her career, which strike me more like the stance a spiritual leader would take rather than an entertainer. Right. You mentioned Porter Wagner and the way in which she moves through that experience and takes this guy who on some level is just kind of a douchebag, right? <laughs> and and she sort of like uh, leaves that experience with such grace, never compromising her own ambitions, right? Right. But also being incredibly forgiving of him, never talking bad about him, but being also very kind of like transparent about how hard it was right and and so not shortchanging the hard parts there's something in that that felt very also with politics for example yeah to cut myself off like uh or i i should i, I before we get there i yeah, should yeah. actually kind of jump in and say that like he was the first one to to give her a can we would say regional semi-national stage no really. it was her first break yeah yeah, yeah. he her gave first her her first break. break yeah and then she grows kind of outgrows that and then, and there's a tension because she's becoming, she's growing large within his organization, starting to maybe overshadow him in some ways at a moment when his star is on the descendant, as mm -hmm. it were. And so then, yeah, the leaving that we're talking about is her deciding to go solo. With her yeah. Career. And so like the forgiveness comes in in that she was, she was clearly a global superstar, even while she was sort of quote the girl singer on his show. And right. in many ways he couldn't, tolerate that like you know i mean and that was a, a moment in nashville and country music where there were no female headliners so he was very much a product of his moment like the sure the the superstar was the man and the man was on the on the front stage and the man always had like the pretty girl singer that was sort of the um embellishment or something right and she was just not about that she was going to have her own career and her own band and so you know that that's like it's like instantly adversarial, right? And you know that story, right? Sure, You've sure. seen like it's kind of a I mean, star even is born. If, even, in if a way. It, even if it weren't a male-female thing, we could expect that level of ego threat from right. the rising ingenue within the organization, and then you add right. that on top of it. But what she does is she sort of upends all of the sort of scripts that we already have in that, in that she was incredibly understanding of him throughout the entire process, while sort of saying to him, "I'm leaving. I'm out." But she does it by writing the song, I Will Always Love You, which yeah. is this tender, like <laughs> empathetic, I love you, I, I wish you happiness, I wish you joy. Like that's, those were her parting words. And it's so heartfelt. And then he falls on hard times a few years after that and she bails him out financially. And so there is this kind of constant level of understanding and forgiveness that she, that she uh, displays 
while going on to be the most incredible performer ever. So she's not compromising herself in any way. Right. But she's not doing it by stepping on his throat. And so many people that we know who've gotten to where they've gotten have done it by stepping on the throat of somebody else to get there. And she just hasn't. And so it's I think it's that quality, which on some level, it does remind you more of like a spiritual leader in some way. Sure. Yeah, again yeah. and again in a lot of yeah. different ways, this seems to be just who she is. Totally, totally. Now, the flip side of that for me is that you see that kind of devotion mirrored back uh, from her fans. Right. And I don't think it's always healthy to put people on these pedestals. I think you kind of need to see people as complicated humans. And I hope that that's also what we're doing in the series. Sure. Is showing her as just somebody who's has her blind spots like everybody, has had some failures along the way like everybody, but still manages to sort of operate with grace and with dignity. I mean, one way that those problematics come in and, you know, they, they start to get mentioned explicitly in the context of that university class that you all go to. That's a wonderful scene in uh, episode six, is it? The seven. Yeah. Seven, seven. The class, which is literally called Dolly Parton's America. You know, where they start to look at, like, what are the blind spots here? Are the boob jokes okay? What does all this mean? Mm -hmm. This vision of the South that she's presenting, what what is being left out here? Right. And I, I think all of that can be true at the same time. Like oh, yeah. Everything we've said before and, 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 and this. That's precisely why she's such an interesting person. I mean, one of the metaphors of the series is the Dollyverse. Yeah. It, which is all, kind of <laughs> like the multiverse, right? You, you have multiple dimensions happening simultaneously. And that is nowhere more true than with her. I mean, you you go to different parts of the country and everybody has a different Dolly Parton that they love. In New York, we sort of see her as this progressive figure who stands for for, uh, LGBTQ rights and and female power. Uh, In the South, she's seen as someone who's a little more wholesome, more kind of a, a woman of faith. Those are the ideas that are foregrounded. And it's all true at mm-hmm. the same time. And so that's what's so interesting about her is that she's never not, she's never like shifting who she is, but she's just so many people that we can all choose who to, who to lean into. For you, this project also turned into a kind of interesting homecoming. You're from sure. Tennessee. Yeah, I grew you, up from you, Tennessee. Like yeah. your whole life you grew up in Tennessee? Or we moved moved there when I was five right, 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 and, right. Then, uh, and then uh, I left at age 18, you know, to go, go to college. And your family is Lebanese-American or yeah. your father is? Both, both, both my both. dad and my right, mom. Right, yeah. right. So you grew up in Tennessee in maybe, as you, I think you describe it, a somewhat uneasy cultural relationship. I mean, that, that your family is sort of not from that region and feeling a bit like an outsider. Yeah, I mean, my dad put it to me perfectly. He described the experience of being a Lebanese guy in Tennessee. I mean, you know, I... Tennessee was a really nice place to grow up. So I I hope I don't overstate the difficulties in the series. But, you know, when you're not of the dominant culture, you never feel quite a part of the thing. Right. And he described it as like, you know, Southern hospitality is real. Everybody is extremely friendly. They'll invite you into their home, but they'll only let they only bring you into the vestibule. So, right, 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 right. And they right. keep you in the vestibule for 10 years. And he's like, that's kind of <laughs> how, how it is, is that everybody's extremely welcoming, but you only get to walk in a few feet. That's kind of what it felt like to grow up there, is that you you were, you know, I never experienced the kind of um, stuff that a lot of people do, you know. I mean, it, it wasn't racialized in my instance because I'm, I'm pretty light-skinned. You know, dark-skinned Arabs have it way worse. But yeah, it, there was always this sense that I was just kind of the oddball. I was just a weirdo. And that never really left me. But also part of, you know, what you're alluding to in the homecoming idea is that 
I also know that that story that I tell about my time in Tennessee is too easy. It's too simple. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of aspects of Nashville that I know now after having done the research that I could have accessed if I had just known about it. Like there's just a much more diverse and interesting place than I ever gave it credit for being. This is something that occurred to me throughout because I'm thinking about myself as I'm listening in relation to country music and country Mm -hmm. music culture. And I'm going through all the things like, okay, Towns Van Zandt is fine with me. Um, Alt country is fine with me. You know, I'm down with Jay Farrar. You know, I'm okay with Willie Nelson. And then there's this whole kind of black box where because of my own cultural programming as a person who grew up in the kind of alternative circles in D.C. or or whatever Mm -hmm. you would call it that I grew Mm -hmm. up in, you know, all of that is inaccessible, cheesy, corny, whatever. And I realized like I realized that, you know, these walls exist for all of us culturally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think with country music, there is like there's that kind of bro country that you that you hear a lot, which I, I do feel like is very self-consciously speaking to an audience and like I, I will never be a part of that audience, mm-hmm. right? Right, right, right. But, you know, you take something like bluegrass, which is like a, a huge neighborhood of country, but not sort of the center of rock country as it exists now. Like bluegrass is like you get these, you have these gatherings and people are sitting down and they're just like, you have these pick, picking circles where people sit and they're all playing the banjo. Right. Uh, these are mostly white audiences, it is true, who, who play the music. But they're playing an instrument that is of African origin that came in through Cuba. Right. Um, these are gatherings that cut across class. You look at the music, the, the musical language of what they're playing. It, these are musical languages that came in from the Middle East, from all over the world. And these are incredibly democratic little gatherings. There's no reason it has to just be like the story of white people in the mountains. <laughs> right, right, right. It doesn't right, have right, to right. be that. I, I grew up thinking it was that. And part of what was sort of really great about doing the research is that, oh my God, this is my music too. This is all of our music. Like I love bluegrass music. I love the musicianship. And like I should I should have as much claim to that as anyone, you know? Yeah, I mean that kind of you know picking and that sort of like the mandolin work and stuff yeah. is very reminiscent of of music that I hear from. My wife is from Turkey, mm. you know. Turkish music has a lot of that very very fast double string picking. As Absolutely, well. yeah, you know those those Turkish lutes and the ouds and all that. It's right. very very similar. Yeah, know? I know. I so that was one of the most interesting things that I learned in in this series was that that one episode where you talked about these overlapping influences and the way that. Um, you know, ethnomusicology is very, like, there is no musical monoculture, and ethno- ethnomusicology is very difficult to, to do because there are so many overlapping influences, how this mountain music has, has those other strains in it. I was so, like, super, it was revelatory for me uh, growing up in the South, and I was, like, one of those people who, like, you'd ask me what I listened to, and I'd say anything but country, which is, like, right. you know, this, like, classic answer that a lot of people give we sort of draw the line there and i didn't i did it unquestioningly right just because i thought like culturally that music is not made for people like me and actually i want to break in and say that like probably what has happened in the kind of bro country that you're talking about we've had no doubt instances where country music and rock and roll and different types of music have evolved to represent a certain kind of identity stance that you know and to and to claim a monoculture that, right. that may not actually exist within the music so you know that our reactions to those things may not be an accident there there there's a dialectic absolutely but I, we also see that breaking down you know with uh, little Nas X and Blanco Brown right. like these these are these are people who are 
like who are challenging the monoculture. Right. And so country is in a really interesting moment right now where it's shifting and like who is uh, of country music and who isn't is all up for grabs, which maybe it has always been and we've pretended otherwise. <laughs> but uh, it was just in a strange circuitous thing in, in episode four, I believe. We ended up going to Dolly Parton's Tennessee Mountain Home, which mm. was the uh, just sort of hallowed ground in Tennessee lore. I refer to it in the episode as Tennessee Valhalla, which is sort of like the Valhalla is this Norse, uh, uh, like a god, the god Odin's home, basically. So it's like the, it's like Olympus in a way, <laughs> just to mix mythologies. And so her house is really important to Tennessee. We should say there's a song about it. We should say there's a oh, pretend, many, a there pretend, many songs, a many songs, yeah. a pretend version of it in Dollywood, yes. which is a theme park. Yes. So it it exists in re- reality and fiction, and it's in that weird middle space. <laughs> and uh, uh, my producer Shimoliai and I, we had been at Dollywood one day, looking at the uh, the replica, and then suddenly, like uh, Dolly's bodyguard slash nephew Brian Seaver just offers to take us to the real place, uh, which we didn't think existed. So it was this weird <laughs> kind of like a Harry Potter like portal moment where you're suddenly driving up the mountain and we end up, you know, turning off on a dirt road and going through a giant wooden gate that's sort of like Game of Thrones. And then suddenly you're there at the actual home, uh, which is just like a house on a hill. I mean, it's a very like simple shack. Right. But there was something about that moment. It was like going back to the epicenter of what I took to be the Southern mythology Fairly or unfairly, that's how it lived in my mind. But then I saw the house, and it reminded me instantly of my dad's home in the mountains of Lebanon. Right. Just the way it looked, the elevation, uh, the shape of it. And I had visited his house 20 years earlier when we went to Lebanon for a wedding. And it was like that memory layering of seeing like, oh, this place that I've always taken to be so Southern, it's the center of it all, is really like my dad's place in Lebanon just like that weird superficial layering became the kind of like portal moment to ask all kinds of questions like how are their stories similar Mm. and it turns out like really similar and that in some way that's one of the reasons that they have a relationship I should say that my dad knows Dolly Parton that's how I can do this series at all and so it became a way to explore the similarities in their biographies but then also we took it to a musicological level right which is like country music, what are the influences that, that can be seen and heard in country music? And it turns out, as has often been talked about, the banjo, this like quintessential like sound of the, of the white mountain man, uh, that deliverance instrument, right? right? Ding, 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 ding. Like that's, that's that the, movie that's deliverance the, did more to, to destroy country, non-country relations than any other cultural. Oh, product it's, I a, can it's, think of. Like, it's a movie that arguably is about the relationships between the North and the South, but all it did was just stereotype the South. Further. Like you, I saw it way too young and yeah. it's traumatized me. Forever. Oh, yeah. horribly, <laughs> horribly. Um, but so like that instrument is actually an African instrument and, mm-hmm. and it's connected to slave cultures playing on plantations that, that have been completely erased from the mythology, right? We don't think of the black fiddle player when we think of that, right? right. Or banjo player, I should say. You look at things like the zither, right? Which can be traced directly to the Middle East. The, the rhythms, the musicality, the singing styles 
are arguably Middle Eastern in origin. And what is the historical trajectory there? Is it like slave trading from the Middle well, East? Well, th- that's where it gets tricky, right? There was we know there was uh, trade routes that came up that came from what we, what is now Syria up into the mountains of uh, Appalachia. We don't know how significant those were, but the thing that's interesting to me now about origins is that musicologists don't even do that as much anymore. Okay. Because you have a mixing that is so both ways all at once. And one of the images that really haunted us was like, there's been a lot of research about ships, like these ships that have crews from all over the world and they pull into a port, everybody gets on and you have 10 different cultures getting on a ship all with their own instruments Mm. and they're bored. So they play to each other and they exchange instruments as like souvenirs. And so suddenly you have frame drums going from Iran all the way up to Mm. Ireland and vice versa. And things are getting exchanged in a way that would be impossible to pinpoint and be like, this is where it started, which a lot of our sort of musicological conversations always are like, it started with black people in Africa and then it came through right, the Caribbean right, and right, into right, here. Right, and that is blunt. true, but at the same time, it was probably happening 12 different ways in 12 different places. So it's so hard sort to sort of like the old, like Alan, John Lomax, Alan Lomax, yeah. ethnomusicology yeah. was really more about the, the tracing of the origins. And now we're in a different, we're in a space, different zone. Yeah. And it's like, you kind of have to trace origins so that you can, you can make an invisible story visible again. Right. And so you don't want to not do that at the same time. Uh, it in a way does the thing that it's trying to avoid, which is that it creates a dominant narrative when actually the narrative is, mu- it's not a narrative. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a series of like, it's a, it's a network, right? It's not a narrative. Mm. And, oh, right, uh, it's, right. It's, it's nonlinear. It's nonlinear. Yeah. It's not like A, B, like beginning, middle, end. There are a hundred beginnings and a hundred middles and a hundred, and, and there is no end in some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind well, of- That's interesting because linear narratives also kind of smuggle in hierarchy, right? The there hierarchy of origins, which you, which is a different in a distributed network. That's right. And so like linear narratives are very much, speaking of hierarchies, like a very Western way of telling history, right? Right. And I think what musicologists are, are waking up to is that we, we don't want to do that anymore. You can talk about influences and connection points, but it's it's it gets very tricky if you want to say this is the beginning and this is the end. Mm-hmm. So organizing it in time gets really hard. Hmm, that's interesting. And that destabilizes in some ways the power struggle on both sides, whether it's, you know, the dominant, you know, those those in power trying to enforce the narrative that they created the music or created the culture. Totally. Or whether it's others trying to upend that narrative. This sort of undercuts that whole fight. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And any time that you see narratives, dominant narratives sort of originate, it's because somebody, usually in a very top-down way, decided this is the story we're gonna tell. Right. You know, you look at the like the segregating of, of radio in the 1920s in country music. You had you had a whole bunch of uh, black musicians playing uh, country music, and you had a whole bunch of white musicians playing R and B. But then they they just decided at a certain point, no, no, you guys are roots. So you do you do the, the, you black musicians do R and B, and you white musicians you get to do hillbilly music, right? And it just got racially segregated at that point. Yeah, again, that the, those identity flags getting planted. Yeah, like, this is what we do. This is what you do. But it was yeah. it was just literally a, an exec in a radio office who made that decision. So <laughs> right, right. It, it wasn't organic for, for, at all. For, for marketing clarity. Right, exactly. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> I, it wasn't one exec, obviously, but you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. That guy. That guy. It's his fault. <laughs> Connected with all of this and, you know, the connection between your your father's story and, and Dolly's story, there's the idea that country mu- of country music as immigrant music, mm. which I found really, really interesting. And I guess 
the idea there is that it is that it's about leaving a kind of idyllic, leaving a, an Eden of sorts, you know, your the 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 country childhood home, and going off to the big city, going off into the dangerous world, going off into the woods, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that there's and that there's overlap there in the kind of longing and the nature of that sort of music that you would get also from immigrant cultures. Yeah. It might be sort of more, I think, technically correct to call it migration music. You okay. Know? But uh, but yeah, absolutely. Everything you just said. I mean, the country music as in... This, this I found really interesting and we didn't get to put it into the series, but country music as an industry was only born when people stopped living in the country. And so what would happen is people would come from like places like where Dolly Parton grew up, right. uh, Locust Ridge, uh, up way up in the Smoky Mountains. They'd come down the mountain to Nashville, mm. where there was an industry. And Nashville is a city. It's a big city. But there was an industry that had grown up to sing songs about the country. And so it was itself, the industry was itself a souvenir of a place people no longer lived. Really the beginning of like the big first big country hit, which I think was called Little Old Log Cabin on the Road in 1921. Okay. Could have that date wrong. But it was exactly the point where if you look at the census where you see America had tipped from being in a predominantly rural society to a to an urban society so country music literally was born at the moment when americans were no longer living in the country mm. and so embedded into the very foundational idea of country music is that longing it's about singing about a place that you've left that you miss and which immigrant doesn't have that feeling and that's a kind of sorrow that i think left the rest of mainstream american pop music. You know, I think about uh, the music of my wife's country, Turkey. There is this concept called huzun uh, mm. in the Middle East, which is this, yeah, sorrow and longing and a sort of melancholy. And that music is all infused, like every popular song is deeply infused with melancholy and longing. Yeah. Um, and that is true of a lot of country music. And that is really decidedly not true of a lot of pop music, you know, other totally. pop music. That's interesting. Yeah. That's super interesting because like uh, the grammar of country, the musical grammar, you know, like talk about the pedal guitar, the crying steel. Right. Uh, it's, it sounds like crying, right? It sounds like wailing. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, there's all these cry breaks that they talk about where you kind of make your voice, you bend notes with your voice to make it sound mournful. Mm. which is extremely similar to the music of the Middle East. Mm. You know, the, the singing style, that melismatic singing style is all about mimicking the sound of crying. Melisma for the listeners is when you, when you sort of go glide over multiple yeah. notes, right? Yeah. Ah. yeah. It, sounds, it sounds like... Some beautiful melismatic singing. I yes, think. you did. <laughs> <Yeah>. You nailed <laughs> it. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it, it all comes from the emotionality of sorrow, I think. And that's interesting to think of in the context of America, right? One major cultural theme strain in America is sort of positive, charging forward, never looking back, to which nostalgia and melancholy is something of a threat. But see, what's interesting about Dolly is that she is both at once. Right, right, she right, is, right. She's the vision of America we all want to believe is true, that we secretly know isn't true anymore, which is that you can just grow up in a tiny little place up in the hills, have nothing, no running water no plumbing, and then you come down and you become maybe the biggest star in the world. Like we all want to believe America That's allows right. that to be true. So she is like the quintessential bootstraps narrative. You know, And this the is music a, follows that too over the yeah, course of totally. her career. But all the while, as she's charging into this kind of optimistic, sunny future, she's mournfully singing about the place that she left over and over. So she has this kind of interesting blend of transcendent nostalgia but also like such a powerful future forward kind of American 
can-do thing with it. I'd like to talk a little bit about your process, yours and Shima's in making this. What did you have to begin with going into it? And then you're making it in real time. I mean, the episodes are being released relatively soon after production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, how how does the process work? You know, has the project evolved significantly from where it started? Going all the way back to the beginning, I don't know that we knew we were going to do a series. You know, (laughs) all the way back to the beginning, I, through my dad, as I mentioned, I had a connection to Dolly Parton. Which we should say, your father is a physician and she was in an accident um, and he treated her and they became friends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I never really believed it was true (laughs) because I'm living here, he's in Nashville still. And uh, I just kind of, I didn't think he was making it up, but I never fully let it enter my consciousness that he might know Dolly Parton. (laughs) Because she's like like the patron saint of Nashville. So it's just weird that suddenly... The idea of your dad hanging out with Dolly. He's not not that kind of guy, (laughs) you know? So um, I love that his voice is in the show too. That's really, pr- really yeah. Cool. I just felt yeah. like it felt yeah. like I had to kind of. I got really interested in her around 2016 when the election was happening, and people kept describing to me a Dolly Parton concert as sort of the opposite of the election in some way. It's the place where everybody seems to come together, mm. and so I just got interested in that simple idea, and asked my dad, "Could you make an introduction?" He did, and so the first time I sat down with her, I didn't know if it would be a series or an interview or anything. And I had done a little bit of research. I'd read, I'd read her autobiography, but I, I, I wasn't as prepared as I should have been. She totally railroaded me for like 90 minutes, uh, just telling me one beautiful story <laughs> after another and singing. And You like and couldn't get a word I in. I couldn't get trust. a word in. And so I walked out of there being like completely in awe of her and enamored, but not sure if I could do anything with the tape. Uh, it didn't feel like there was a lot that I could bring to her story because her story is so out there. I want to, I'm sorry, I want to bust in at this point yeah. and say that it's interesting. I think it's interesting and meaningful that at this point in your career, you're still open to just going and trying to have a conversation and see whether, you know, with absolutely no idea of what kind of project it's going to turn into that as an artist, you're, you're willing to explore in those ways. That's yeah. Really cool. I mean, I, I feel like anything good that, we, that I've ever done uh, has gone through this long period of like flailing you know where you don't know what it is and you you know I've learned enough over the course of my career to, to to protect that space and to sort of say okay this is like a development space where we're just going to do stuff right. follow our instincts uh you know you kind of have to continually ask hard questions about what can it be but you kind of can't like define it too early premature certainty is always the enemy I feel like and uh and yeah, it was in that kind of fluid space where I had the first conversation, didn't think it was going to be useful. Uh, or I should say, I didn't think I could bring anything new to the topic. But then Shima and I ended up spending, well, two things happened. First, we we went to uh, the University of Tennessee to that class that you mentioned. Right. That was pretty early on. And uh, to sit in a room with these 12 college kids and to see the way they were thinking so smartly and deeply and personally about her influence in their lives and about the history of their region of Southern Appalachia, it just suddenly brought everything to life. Like I thought, oh, there is so much more here than just a celebrity. This is a person who represents a world that these kids are a part of and that they're struggling with. And they have a lot of internalized stereotypes that they're externalizing through this history research. And she's connected to all that in really complicated ways. So that was like a real light bulb moment. 
And then the second thing that happened was we went and interviewed Dolly a second time. This time, armed with all of the stuff that the kids had told us, and we did a crap ton of research this time where we we basically gathered together everything that she had ever said in the media, which is vast because she's been giving interviews for years. And all these old pictures and these old records, like, you know, a record that she made when she was 11. And we put it all into basically PowerPoint, literally a PowerPoint presentation. And we sat there with her and it was like a four hour interview. And we just clicked through the PowerPoint. And we were just like, okay, in 1967, this is you, you said this. (laughs) What do you think about when you hear this? And we just went click, click, click and moved through it all. These are kind of the like the gem moments though. You didn't didn't take her through her entire interviewography. No, well, I mean, we took her through her entire life practically. Um, (laughs) I mean, we we, we did the Porter Wagner chapter. Uh We did did a whole chapter on this, like her first gig singing for the Cass Walker grocery store, which we never ended up using. We went through all of these sort of political questions about feminism and about Democrat, Republican, and all that kind of stuff happened in that same interview. Yeah, uh, She talked about her suicide. I shouldn't say suicide, her uh, contemplation of suicide sure. in that interview. We went through all of these old, old songs that she had written when she was like 23 or four that are like deeply painful songs about female suffering. We play, we hit play on a bunch of those and she just kind of talked about where they came from. And there was something about that. I think that whole experience of like, she saw how much we cared (laughs) and how much we had thought through her life and that we were taking her super seriously. Like most celebrity interviews with Dolly, it's like, how have you been doing it so long? (laughs) You look great. Like there's, that's kind of the way that those conversations happen. But she was like, oh my God, these people have like gone through my whole life. And they've talked about songs that no one else talks about, you know, like the song Down From Dover, which is, which she would say is her best song. She wrote, I think late sixties. Nobody cares to talk about that with her. I know this dress I'm wearing doesn't hide the secret I have tried concealing When he left he promised me that he'd be back by the time it was revealing So it's a woman who whose husband moves away right she's pregnant she knows if she is noticed that she's pregnant the family's going to ostracize her which they do and then the baby is born stillborn as a way of poetically saying to her see he's not coming back and it's this horrible song of like a woman trapped by the prison of her circumstances and by the culture that surrounds her. It's a beautiful song and it's a ballad. It's got so many, so many verses, kind of lulls you into a trance. But, um, you know, we asked her about that song and mm-hmm. that, that spun off into a whole story. But I think she saw how serious we were. And that was the moment when the world of, the, of Dolly Parton's America really emerged. All of these worlds about history and the South and Appalachia and about feminism and politics and her as a songwriter and her as somebody who's moved through these kind of moments with Porter and like the glass ceiling moments. All of that stuff came from that one long interview. And I feel like that's really when we walked out of there thinking, oh, this is actually many episodes. It's not just one episode. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, she she talked about murder ballads in that story and that was I walked out of there being like I've got to call somebody to to know more about what murder ballads are she talked about how her mom sang her a song about a woman being beaten to death and drowned right and I was like how who what is this song (laughs) so like all of these questions came out of that interview and then it just it just seemed like oh this is a bigger project you know on the political stuff one of the interesting questions that the series raises right which is something I've been thinking about a lot lately 
you know, we're in a we're in a historical moment where just about everybody I know feels that that they are honor bound to to devote 60 to 90% of their consciousness and their energy to engaging and focusing on political questions to having strong positions yeah. to you know taking action on those in the world and it has occurred to me you know lately that there's a kind of a tyranny in this and that you know yes. that there is a need also for beauty and art in the world even at a moment when everyone is tearing themselves apart politically and that mm -hmm. you know and that there have to be some people that aren't at war Dali explicitly carefully does not take too many political positions outside of on LGBTQ rights, it seems. Yeah. And uh, that's, it's one of the hardest, it's like this tension that doesn't resolve ever. I feel as you feel, I think we all do, that it's like the circumstances of, of America right now are such that you can't just stick your head in the sand. You've got to engage it. You've got to like speak out. You've got whatever the truth is to you, you've got to speak that truth, right? At the same time, it is interesting to me that Dolly's apolitical stance feels downright subversive right now. <laughs> right. You know right, what I mean? Right, right. It feels like rebellion in some weird way. And that is really indicative to me that like maybe we should shut the fuck up a little bit more <laughs> and, and not speak. And like there's something she said a lot of things on this topic to me that have really stuck in my head. And one of the things she said, it's almost an aphorism, but I think it really hit me was is that we have the freedom to speak. We also have the freedom not to speak. And I think um, right. her decision not to speak on politics doesn't feel to me like she's avoiding controversy. It actually feels like a real ethos, like a real decision. And again, we talked about how sometimes she, is, uh, she has the stance of a spiritual leader. I think in those moments she kind of does, like she is not going to judge. She's not gonna cast someone out. Even if it means being accepting of somebody that you feel like is a despicable human. Now, I don't know how she feels about Trump, but I'll say it outright. Like, I, I think that, that Trump is a madman, right? Sure. But uh, I also know that to say that, it, it suddenly cuts me off from so many conversations that I could have, right? I was and so, like, that's, that's the tension. I was you know? thinking about family, you know, and about, like, in a sense, the stance she's taking toward, toward these things is the stance one might choose to take in a family and say, okay, like, I'm going to sit down to dinner with these people, even though we disagree radically on certain things. And mm -hmm. that in that detente, in that choice not to directly speak to the thing that divides you, sometimes over time there's a flowering forth of understanding of change yeah. of whatever yeah. that can happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. Totally. You know, I just had a really moving conversation with one of my closest friends whose dad uh, just passed away and he spent a, about two months with his dad and he loves his dad, uh, but his dad recently became a Trump supporter. Mm. And it was just this, <laughs> like, just this. I feel mm, it in my gut. I like, yeah, yeah, and it yeah. was this wedge between them and not so much from his dad's point of view, his dad's was like, what? I'm still your dad. I just, I just like the guy. Mm -hmm. but, but my friend was like, no, you don't understand. I can't <laughs> love you if you <laughs> right, right, love right. him. <laughs> you know, it just, they got to that place. And then uh, his dad got sick and he spent two months and he just realized in those moments, there were other conversations we, we could be having. Like you can just accept that that's a deep, deep fundamental difference that we have between us, but it's not the only thing. And there's something about hearing him tell that story that was really moving to me. And, there, and it reminded me of Dolly and that I don't feel like she's ignoring things. I think she's just trying to focus our attention on, on, the, on other ways of speaking, you know, right. or other ways of relating to each other. 
I find that really refreshing right now. I find that it's really needed. I mean, uh, now, and she could be misunderstood and called out for that, but not every, every. It's not everyone's job to do the same job. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and she, and that's that is something you'll hear her say a lot, which is, <laughs> I'm, it's not my job. I'm an entertainer. I actually think she sells herself a little bit short when she says I'm an entertainer. I think she's more than that, but I get it. Like I, I don't need that of her, and I think the people that need her to take a stand. I think the generous way to say is they, they, they think she can move the needle, but I think the sort of ungenerous way is that it's like a form of vanity. Do I need her to, to like, what if she's a Trump supporter? Right. Do right. I suddenly want her to take a stand? I don't know. Where does that leave us? Where yeah. does that leave yeah, us, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, my secret suspicion is she's not, but that's just me. I, I have no information to say uh, yay or nay on that. That's, that's my se- secret su- um, suspicion as well after listening to the show, but mm-hmm. I also, yeah. Yeah, I have, I have no uh, inside info there. So, he's reaching okay. for a box. I'm reaching for a box, a black box. And you know what this thing is. You, we, we talked I'm about vaguely it a familiar. Bit it I says mean, you're an art student from Oberlin, for Christ's sake. You know. Yeah, but that's, that doesn't, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't say a lot. <laughs> it says that, oblique I mean, is, strategies yeah, is what it looks is, like. This is um, oblique strategies. This is, you know, uh, sort of a mainstay of like um, experimental Dadaist creativity, um, a creativity tool mm. created by Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt in 1975. There are a series of what I sometimes think of as like Zen koans that they wrote that are meant to kind of push you into a different space, like when you're stuck in a creative project. But uh, we'll use them here. Like I'll have you draw one, and we'll and I, I just use it like a free association, whatever it takes okay. you to. Okay. Interesting. All right, go and for I'm it, Jeff. Just gonna draw a card from the middle of the deck. Should I read it? Yeah, read it out. What are you really thinking about just now? <laughs> <laughs> Incorporate. <laughs> That's great. What am I really thinking about right now? I was uh, I was really thinking th- this is a novel thing to do in an interview. <laughs> Maybe I should try it in one of my interviews. Um, and then I was thinking, uh, I was a little nervous about the car that I was going to draw, and I hope it didn't make me have to admit something. Which so th- that's honestly what I was thinking. I like how it just says incorporate. <laughs> There's something so formal but but playful about that. We actually have t- two other people who we don't have mics in front of in the mm-hmm. room. Shima's here. What are you thinking right now, Shima? <laughs> Shima's mouth is open. I think about a thousand thoughts in one in like a, a millisecond of time. So many things. There is a there is a sharply shaped object hanging next to Jad's head, which looks like half a horseshoe and half a weapon of. That <laughs> you'd like to throw at my head, maybe. And, and there's like a there's like um there's like a gem attached to it, so it's like a beautiful weapon. Is that a, a is that a is that one of those um is that a Nazarlik? Is that an evil eye warding yeah, off thing? Is, yeah, but then it's like attached to a horseshoe that has spikes on it. It's the strangest it, thing, and I don't know why it's hanging in the studio. Well, I I think they're both about luck, right? Yeah. Well, what I was thinking of yeah. this is, and then there's some fish that are like fluorescent and metallic, and they they're also cut out and put on this board. And happy Friday. And I was thinking about <laughs> this is the first episode where Jad says he's a fish out of water. Like he's like can't see the water of Dolly Parton because she's so infused in the air of Tennessee. And then I thought, oh, that's episode one. And then episode eight, which we're working on right now, which Jad and I were uh, editing yesterday, is 
is encompassed in this weapon (laughs) that is somewhat spiritual, somewhat very scary because there's a horseshoe and we go to the Dolly Stampede where there is a horseshoe competition and it is the scariest episode that we've had to do so far. It is the most um, intricate. The actual horseshoe in the Stampede show is actually very lovely and it's like a kid's competition and someone gets a book from Dolly, but... That's my incorporate (laughs) (laughs) underlined. Awesome. That was just a window into the mind of Shima. Who is thinking a lot more things than I was at that moment. I'm I'm glad that Shima was here because a lot's going on in her mind. There's also a post note. There's a lot more happening, but yes. I think that that is actually as good a place for us to to wrap as any. Thank you so much for being on Think Again, Jad. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, and this is a great conversation. I appreciate it. And the series, the podcast series is Dolly Parton's America. It is nine episodes, and uh, seven are out, along with like a musical sampler thing. And the next one drops... Uh, It drops uh, Tuesday morning. Ah, Tuesday morning. Okay, great. it is imminent. And that's it. Thank you for another amazing year of Think Again. We'll be back on January 18th, 2020 with a beautiful new conversation with Joseph Goldstein. It's a perfect way to start the year. Be safe, be well, and see you then.